Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Soulful CXO Podcast with Dr. Rebecca Wynn. These conversations focus on the intersection of technology, business, and humanity, exploring how these three areas impact each other. Dr. Wynn interviews guests, including business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts in various fields to share insights and experiences on cybersecurity, risk management, and leadership. The podcast aims to provide a fresh perspective on how technology can be leveraged to create positive change in the world. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Matthew Rosenquist. Matthew is the award-winning Chief Information Security Officer for Eclipse.io, and former cybersecurity strategist for Intel Group, a LinkedIn top 10 technology voice, Thinkers360 top 10 cybersecurity thought leader, member of multiple advisory boards, keynote speaker, author of acclaimed articles, blogs, and podcasts on a wide variety of cybersecurity topics. He advises CISOs, boards, academia, government, and business globally on emerging threats, innovation, and industry best practices. And he insisted on a shortened bio so we could jump right in. Matthew, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Great to chat with you again. Matthew, you have an interesting background, and I always like to start my show for people to realize that not all of us had a straight trajectory on how we got to our career. Can we walk through about what you did in college and how you got to be the CISO you are today? I actually started for another company doing internal investigations, and that's where I got hooked on this adversarial environment and how tantalizing it is where it's you against the bad guy. And when I joined Intel, I actually started in their IT group but very quickly because I had the background and the understanding of risks. Very quickly, we're moved into cybersecurity and I actually justified and then built out Intel's first 24 by 7 security operations center. And things just progress from there. Once that was built, we needed to have essentially a CERT team. They call it something different, but it's an emergency response team. So I landed that and became Intel's first incident commander. So I owned everything, had a war room and brilliant people and managed crisis. And again, it just, what's the next big challenge? I went after it. I built and managed M&A security. I managed the playbook for all security going into computer chips that Intel was making managing security for AI, just one challenge after the next. And I've loved every single moment of my career, which now spans almost 35 years, 34, 35 years. Now, you mentioned Security Operations Center, and that's where I grew up too. But now we hear a lot about cyber fusion centers. Can you explain what the difference is? I really don't see a whole lot of difference between the two, but can you explain the audience? Because they might not know what's the difference between the new world term cyber fusion The dirty secret is it's really marketing, right? Our industry loves repackaging things and bringing out new acronyms. Firewall, no, it's a next generation firewall. No, it's next generation firewall. It's an IPS. No, it's an IDS. No, it's... Okay, so Security Operations Center is really just the heartbeat. It monitors bad things that are potentially going on. And it can also do a little proactive work in understanding what things are vulnerable and kicking off things. But think of it as like almost a help desk where you're responding to alerts, not necessarily calls, but alerts, and you're doing something. 
when you're talking about a fusion center, that's, again, fancy terms, but it's really about interconnecting with other groups, many of them outside your environment. So it isn't just looking and taking inputs from what's going on within your borders, but you're also communicating with potentially government agencies or peers in your industry or whatnot to get other telemetry and information that helps you figure out what's a priority, what might be coming and what you need to do. So it's just a an evolutionary advance from what a security operations center is. But nowadays, security operations centers, whether they call themselves fusion centers or not, are probably doing that anyway. They're getting feeds externally and working with partners proactively. So we can change the terminology, but it's all just kind of marketing. Don't yeah, tell that, anybody. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, I won't broadcast that. Yes, okay, okay. When it comes down, the core is still the core. You know, do you have internal threats going on that you need to be able to handle? Mm -hmm. Is information leaving your environment? And if you don't think any information is leaving your environment, you're naive. And what actually is being coming into your environment? And are you going to be able to handle it on the local level? Do you need to go ahead and work with third-party suppliers? Do you need to work up maybe with one of the tier groups, state agencies, and government agencies to help you resolve those issues? And I'm trying to remind everybody, you do have those levels to be able to help you. You don't have to be in your own silo. Remember, you have that. You talk quite a bit about, you know, merging technologies. Don't get me. People didn't see that. He laughed. I said he talks quite a bit about emerging. I do about everything, unfortunately, but yes. <laughs> but as we look at emerging technologies, what excites you with the emerging technology that's coming up? And a second part of the question, and you can answer them congruently or separately. What literally keeps you up at night? With the technology. <laughs> Those are two really big questions. All right, I'll take the first one. We've got a lot of emerging technologies. Nobody could answer that question without obviously saying artificial intelligence. It's the go-to answer to that. But there's different aspects of artificial intelligence that I'm worried about. First off, at a high level, I'm worried about the adoption. Artificial intelligence, and you're talking a huge span of, of different types, can provide tremendous value, which means the market wants to embrace it as quickly as possible, right? For their business gains or financial gains or cost savings or optimizations or competitiveness, whatever, that's great. But the faster you rush to adopt a new technology, the more risk that you inherently adopt as part of it. So as valuable and as wonderful as AI is and can be, we have to recognize that it comes with an equitable amount of risk as well. So the rush into AI, whether it's generative AI or ML or DL, something more narrowed down. If we rush too fast, and we did that with like cloud and many other things in our past, we're going to feel the sting because the bad guys are going to take advantage of that. And if security hasn't caught up to help secure what you're going to adopt, you are now putting yourself at risk. And if you don't understand the risk, you're going into it blindly. At least if you're going to do it, understand the risk and accept it versus just diving in blindly and going, oh, that won't be a problem or we'll fix it later or, or something like that. Make intelligent risk decisions. Other technologies out there, which I think are fantastic, that are also hugely disruptive, you look at quantum computing, we're coming 
up to a cliff, which will be very interesting when it comes to certain types of encryption that we heavily use in everything on the web and bank accounts and financial transactions and data protection and all sorts of stuff. So we need to worry about that. I'm excited about blockchain. I think there's some great innovation that we're going to see with decentralized types of environments. It's a new paradigm for computing. And again, it's good in some areas, bad in others. But again, if we adopt those, we bring in risks. We're seeing regulatory changes which are impacting how we do business. And probably the biggest concern that I have is the investment in new technology. And this is going to tie in with your second question, what keeps me up at night. We are seeing nation states pour billions and billions of dollars into offensive capabilities. And that means developing new tools, developing new processes. Before it was just a few handful of really smart people trying to undermine technology and they would get lucky or get good or they could focus on something and find something bad. But when you've got billions of dollars to throw around, you're going to find a lot of vulnerabilities in technology, in people, in processes. And they're intending on using them. And many people think, oh, that's a nation state. Sure, they're going to attack some government, but not me. I'm just a citizen or I just have a small business. And that's a false belief because the simple fact is when that big nation state spends a billion dollars in identifying vulnerabilities and creating exploits and unleashes it, even if they're attacking some other government, they unleash it. The world sees it and all the bad guys grab it, tear it apart, dissect it, and start using pieces of it. They benefit from that billion dollars of research. And now you've got common cyber criminals using this advanced technology to attack everyone. So eventually it all filters down and we're at the bottom of that. So that's what keeps me up at night is the great influx of resources and intention and capabilities that will bring more exploitation across the entire spectrum for all of us. Yeah, adding on to that, I think one of the things that's, that adds on to the, the risk and the scariness and keeping us up at night, as Jim Roth would say, Steve Crash talked about, we do wake up every 45 minutes crying like babies do. That's how we sleep like babies. Is everybody inadvertently actually is a threat anymore? People say, well, I don't know people to go ahead and connect in chat GPT, but there's a plethora of versions out there. People working remote, people could be on their phone, they could be different things. You're not going to keep people away from that. I looked at a marketing research study just a few months ago, and they thought seven to 10% of corporate data was streaming out. And now it's up to 12 to 15%. That becomes dangerous. Then you also have yes. where anybody can be quote unquote, an expert. They can go ahead and be asked, how do you do X? How do you do Y? How do you Z? Give me all the steps. And now everybody actually can be a threat actor. And threat actors can engage in those threat actors and being able to get that information. So that's one thing I see that people aren't really paying attention is the purposefully or unpurposely threat that you have with every single person that you may hire. Yes. It's lowering the entry into doing bad things. But again, we, we need to take an even view. AI tools, especially generative 
and LLMs, right? Large language models like ChatGPT. Part of their value is to be able to create and disseminate and aggregate information. And that's part of the value. Think about when the first really good search engines came out. When those tools came out, they created a huge benefit. Now, at the same time, it exposed a huge amount of information. Well, the same thing for ChatGPT. The value of ChatGPT, if you're going to institute it as a company and expose it out to your customers or anything else, you need that AI system to be connected to back-end information. And it might be the internet backbone. It might be information on the deep web, which is normally firewalled from business information, firewalled from the world. But it's going to reach out. And in many senses, you're going to want to actually configure it if you misconfigure it, you could expose all your information. So that's where huge risks come in. It may be misconfiguration of the tool itself. It may be improper training of the tool. It may be the fact that it has too many rights and permissions to your sensitive data, right? It may simply be the interface. You may set up a web page for this chat GPT and the web page is a vulnerability and now that's an ingress point for attackers. Right. Again, there's so many different things that has to be thought about. That's why when I, I advise companies, I tell them early on, if you're going to do an AI anything, make sure you have your security pros in there at the point that you're starting to architect it. And even before that, even in conceptual design, because they're going to be able to see areas that you just won't. And if you don't get them involved on the front end, it's going to be crisis on the back end. So in the absence of leadership, we are left with crisis in our industry. So make sure you get security leadership involved early and they can help you close some of those gaps so you're not exposed. And tying into what you had said earlier in our conversation about enterprise risk management, I'm putting enterprise risk management, you said enterprise risk, mm -hmm. risk management. One of the things that I see is, do you have a risk register? Yes, we do. We let Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo, go ahead and accept the risk because sales or marketing, not picking them, I'm just those two on top of my head, they want to use this AI, which you're like, okay, did legal take a look at it? What's their terms and conditions? What's the privacy policy? Are they being able to go ahead and look at your history? How does that work? Did it go through a security review? What API calls? What, once you have that instantiated, is there other API calls you can do? And they're like going, yeah, but they accept the risk. I think the there's a innate issue and the, what's broken is enterprise risk management has been broken and looking at risk registers have been broken. If you're only looking at is my windows or my Apple devices patched, that's not the only risk out there. What do you see and what do you advise people? That's the one thing I see is the wrong people are approving these things. I believe risk registers are better than not having a risk register because sure. at least you're being consistent in however comprehensive that you're being within your risk register. So it's better than nothing. But at the end of the day, right, if we look at it strategically, when it comes to risk, you can only do a couple of different things. You can accept it, you can deny it, you can transfer it, you can mitigate it, right? There's only certain things. And ultimately, it's the executives that make that decision, whether they're going to accept it or not. We are here to help as security professionals for them to make well-informed risk decisions. 
Now, just having a risk register thrown out there that may be insufficient to explain anything, they may be willing to accept their viewpoint of risk based on what they're being presented. But if they don't actually understand from a comprehensiveness perspective, then they're really not accepting the risk. They're not making a good business decision. So it is our job, and risk registers are one tool, one of many tools, to make sure that we educate them so that they are making good business decisions. We may not agree with it. We may want to mitigate the risk, but it is up to them. So they're typically representatives of the shareholders or whatnot. And as long as we're doing our job, then they should be able to make the best, they should be given the opportunity to make the best decision, right? For the direction of the company. But just relying on a risk register, just relying on a four by four graph with a, a red quadrant and an orange quadrant, that is insufficient. And we tend to realize that when something bad goes on and they come back and go, oh my gosh, the castle is burning. And you go, yeah, but you accepted it. And they go, I didn't accept this. They're not going to be happy with you as the security champion, as the security leader, because their expectation was you needed to explain it to me in terms that I understood so that I could make a good decision. And apparently that didn't happen because I wouldn't have agreed to this. And that's where you get conflicts. That's why we don't sleep well at night many times. And that's why there's a lot of turnover and a high degree of stress. If we're not doing our job and allowing the company to make good decisions. And some CISOs do a good job at this, by the way, because there is a flip side to this. A good CISO will go to their executives and say, here's risk A, B, and C. Here's the likelihood. Here's what bad things are going to happen. And we can mitigate some of it. If you want to accept it, great. We can figure that out. But here's going to be the potential consequences. And if that does come to fruition, I've had conversations with executive managements going, yeah, I accepted that risk. This is what you told me was going to happen. It happened. I How do we move forward from here? That's the right discussion. Right? Instead of the blame game, we're now focused on how do we fix things and how do we learn from that? And CISOs that do it right get a huge degree of credibility moving forward. So it's it rests on our shoulders, much of this. If we act poorly, poor results happen. And to add on to what you're talking about when we do present it to executives, there is another way that they choose to accept it is when we go ahead and we perhaps go ahead and have that fine coming down from GPR and EU and all that stuff, we will deal with it. We'll kick the, the legal case down the road for three years. And we know that $350 million fine will get cut down to $50 million. In the meantime, we'll do that. I tell one thing that I, as an individual, have a hard line to stand. There's one thing about going ahead and saying that we know this is a relative risk. But when you're actually putting individuals HIPAA, mm -hmm. your employees' data on the line to make a buck, that's time where I tell CISOs may be time to really consider to walk away. Um, I'm yeah. putting your ethics as a human mm -hmm. being and being able to wake up at night because your ethics are online. Life is too short for that. There's companies out there who want to do the right thing. Companies always have some sort of risk 
business sure. can't move. Hospitals, I'll give you an example, it comes to saving that patient's life. They will save that person's life and then they'll worry about trying to go ahead and on the back end, try and protect the data as much as possible. Sometimes life has to come first. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I think that there is at times burnout and we do see a lot of systems changing is we're coming from where we're like going, we've gone ahead and took the back seat, maybe to ourselves a little bit too much. And now we're seeing a ratification of that. And then with legal cases recently, I tell you, I don't want to be in a six by four or six by three cell for anybody. Do you see that that's coming in play too? And that's why we're also seeing burnout, but we're also seeing a lot of CISOs walk away or say no to jobs. Yeah, ever since the Uber case has has come to fruition and where the CISO is held accountable for actually for some squirrely things, decisions that they made, there's a lot more pressure and discussion within the CISO communities. And I think it's great. I also think it's sad because those discussions should have happened long before. Discussions around ethics and scruples and doing what's right should always be in the conversation. And it shouldn't take a CISO being sentenced to jail time for people to start talking about it. Ethics matter. And especially in our industry, as we're protecting critical infrastructure, right? We're protecting people's lives in some cases. That matters. So every CISO really should understand that they may have a material impact on others. It may be minor, it may be life and death, but they should also be making good decisions. And if an organization is not aligned with those, you don't want to be a part of that organization. No good things will happen, right? Because even if you go, I don't agree with it. I think it's unethical, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Essentially, you're endorsing it and you may be on the line for it. CISOs are known for being scapegoats. So you won't be able to distance yourself from it. And you may not be able to look yourself in the mirror for it either if something bad happens. So I give the exact same advice, Rebecca. If there is not an alignment of ethics, then you need to move on to an organization where there is an alignment because there are great companies out there doing the right thing. I think consumers and business partners, definitely regulators, are looking at that. And it's important. It's important for business. It's important because it's simply the right thing to do for humanity and society. CISOs have to make a decision, but make a conscious one. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the other shift that I see is I see them shifting away from people who've been in the trenches, who've been there quite a bit, to shifting to the left, where it's person, they got a, not knocking, but they got a degree in cybersecurity. They came out of technology. We want a CISO because it says on this framework or this legal contract, we have to have a CISO. So we're going to name this person a CISO, which doesn't have a true background with CISO. I think that's very dangerous for companies to be thinking about. And I think when they look about risk and you look at now board members can be held accountable and do jail time, be very cautious. You might not need what we would consider a full-time CISO, but you would need a bona fide, strong B CISO to be able to deal with legal and compliance and advise you strategically. If you're aspiring only to be a CISO, just like what I've talked on shows and what I've written, don't aspire to be a CISO. Aspire to be the best technologist, the best strategic, the best leader possibly can. And if that leads you to CISO, 
Why? But no, as you said, we can do jail time. There's a lot of legal responsibility. So what's your viewpoints on what's going on that way? I think it's a very dangerous situation, right? Being a CISO is not easy for many complex reasons. As I said before, our industry is about leadership and crisis. And when you don't have good leadership in cybersecurity, you do end up in crisis. It might be in the short term, might be in the long term, but there will be a crisis. Just having a degree doesn't necessarily mean you have the in-depth experience to be successful, especially in complex environments. And that's true in all sorts of different fields. It's especially true in cybersecurity. So you need to have the leadership and the insights to be able to predict bad things that are going to happen so that you can prevent, right, organize your resources to prevent as much as you can and still detect what gets through and then respond and recover when things go south and continually learn. So it does take leadership and experience to do this job well. To go to an engineering manager and go, hey, tomorrow you're now going to be a CISO, you're doing a disservice to your organization and you're doing a disservice to that person as well because they're going to get cratered. They're going to fail. And ultimately, they'll be the scapegoat and you may rinse and repeat or the organization may learn and go, yeah, that wasn't a very bright move. We actually need somebody that knows really what they're doing. And you have to invest in somebody that can handle the job. Otherwise, bad things will happen. Sometimes you have to get burned before you learn. That's a true statement. I think one of the things too is, and I know when I deal with third-party suppliers and we do want someone to be in charge, I specify what I mean by CISO, what I expect their duties to be, what I expect them to be able to do. I mean, quarterly results, well, you give me an attestation. I've worked with big companies before where I've had to keep an attestation. To me, that's a big key. Will you give me a monthly attestation and put your name on the line as the CISO as a memo that this is to your best ability? You know that this is the truth. So I think one of the things is when we talk about a lot of these frameworks, a lot of these certifications, having just thou must have a CISO, they shall have someone who's in charge of security. I think that's done a disservice because even though the people who are involved in creating these we know what we mean, but when we talk earlier about like communication to the executives, we've done a bad job of communicating what it really means to be in our world and what we mean by our terms. And that's one thing I also think when we talk about moving forward, we have to go ahead and do a better job on educating those who want to be in the field, those who are in the field, and the executives on what does the terms really mean to us? And we need to have a voice. I think that you and I both do that. We speak out quite a bit. We write a lot of writings. But that's one thing I also see is lacking. Do you see that as well? A figurehead, by definition, is not empowered to make positive change. And if that's all a company has, and I'm dealing with a third-party vendor or a supplier or a partner, and that's all they have, that's meaningless, right? It's just a figurehead. They need to be able to actually deliver against security goals and expectations, I am as a CISO. I have very clear security. I have a mission. I have a vision. I have actual goals that are measurable. I know what my goals are. Right? And then everything feeds into that. So 
the same thing when you're dealing with a partner or a vendor, whatnot, those same expectations need to translate over because their vulnerabilities become your vulnerabilities. Their weaknesses right, become your weaknesses. We're all bound together when you start sharing data, granting access or giving whatever it is, we then are sharing the same boat. So we need to make sure that they're as diligent and they're managing risk at an equitable level as you are. Absolutely. Our time, unfortunately, has run short. What is the best way, Matthew, for people to get a hold of you for speaking engagements, advisory services, and what's the best way for them to learn about your company? Yeah, you can go out to Eclipse.io and take a look at the company if you're interested. If you want to get a hold of me, you're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. I've got a, a few followers out there and I post quite a bit. I also have a Cybersecurity Insights channel on YouTube that you can go out to. Our jobs are tough. And if we don't work together and communicate together as a community, we're going to lose. And, and you do it, I do it. We all have to share. So please connect with me on LinkedIn and jump into discussions, share your insights and experiences. Thank you, Matthew. You are a soulful CXO. I'm proud to be one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Soulful CXO Podcast with Dr. Rebecca Wynn, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.